Well, open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. We've got a lot to cover tonight. Daniel chapter 6, we're halfway through the book of Daniel, but this will be our last sermon in this series for right now on the book of Daniel. Here's what's happened. Um, we've covered about 70 years. Daniel shows up in chapter 1. He's 14. He's 15. Maybe he's 17. We don't know. He's in his teenage years. He's growing up. God uses him as a young man. And then this book covers about 70 years. Okay, We only get six stories in 70 years. Uh, that's because a lot of life is normal, everyday life, right? It's like, oh, I'm following the Lord. I'm trying to be faithful. But then every once in a while... Um, God does something miraculous, or we have an opportunity, and, and those stories are kind of kept for us, and that's what happens in these six chapters. And, and today, we're going to be in the most famous story. You know it. If you grew up in Sunday school or, or kids' ministry or whatever, you heard of Daniel in the lion's den. That's right, Daniel in the lion's den, uh, which is interesting because it's not really the main point of the story. It's only like three verses. We'll get to that. But, um, but Daniel in the lion's den, and this is going to be the last, uh, because last sermon uh, in this series in the book of Daniel, because at, from chapter 7 through chapter 12, is just prophecy. So the first six chapters is a narrative. The last six chapters is prophecy and has to deal with the 2020 election. I'm just kidding. It doesn't. Some people might think it does. It's about end times, prophetic prophecy. Uh, it's, a lot of, it's, it's a lot of fun. Maybe we'll come back and dive into it at some point. We're actually going to be starting a new book and a new series next week. Pastor Dave will tell you about that at the end of the service. But if you'll open up to Daniel chapter 6, I'm excited to end this series and end um, our time in this book together in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius. Who is Darius. Well, we don't know a lot about him. He's just another king, right? Kings and kingdoms come and go. One of the big questions in this book is, okay, you're building a kingdom. Whose kingdom are you building? And that's a great question to ask. You know, you're building a financial kingdom. Whose? Yours or God's? Um, you're, bu you're building a career kingdom. You're building a family kingdom. You're building a health, wealth, image kingdom. You're building a social media kingdom. You know, it's like you're building a kingdom with your free time. You're building a kingdom in your home. What are, you know, what are you doing? What am I doing? That's a great question to ask. What are you doing with what you're building? And what are you building? And, and the second question in this book is, are you a Babylonian or are you a believer? It's like, well, you know, think about it. It's probably not obvious to you. You know, are you more like the culture? Or are you more like Christ? And the, if, if you're not actively, intentionally repenting and trying to follow Christ and trying to be honest and be in the scriptures, you're probably more of a Babylonian. I'm probably more of a Babylonian than I am a believer. And so this book challenges us. It calls us out. It tells us, look, you don't have the option to assimilate into culture to become just like the culture, okay? That's not an option. You don't have an option to separate from culture, right? We call the one option compromise, we call the other option Christianize, okay? Compromise or Christianize, those are not options, right? Compromise is there's no difference between me and the world. Um, Christianize is that we're the Amish, right? And it's like, I'm not making fun of the Amish, but the Amish are very good at reaching their children and that's it. Because when you fully separate, you can't reach anybody, right? And you're supposed to be, I'm supposed to be, if you're a Christian, I know not everyone in this room is a Christian, but if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be salt and light. It's like, well, what's the purpose of salt? Flavor and preservation. And where do you put salt? Do you put salt on things that won't perish? No. Salt is meant to go, it's very simple, salt is meant to go on that which perishes. So, well, what's the purpose of light? Well, you know, a lot of things, right? Life, that would be nice. Direction, that's helpful. How about just exposing the darkness you know, where's light supposed to go? Well, where it's darkest. And so th this book is, is how to live a faithful and a fruitful Christian life in the culture. And so we, got, we meet this guy named Darius. Here's what it says. It pleased Darius to set up over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials. Guess who gets to be one of the high officials? Of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give accounts so that the king might suffer no loss. And then look at verse 3. 
Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit, the Holy Spirit. What makes us different, what makes you unique is not how you dress. It's not necessarily the language you use. What makes you unique is that you have the Holy Spirit in you who is guiding you, who is counseling you, who is convicting you, who is leading you, who is illuminating scripture. That's what makes you different, unique. So he says he has this excellent spirit was in him and the king planned, this is a great plan, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, you know, this is interesting. Daniel was very good at his job. That's not a bad idea. You know, Daniel, found, here's what he found. He found, and this is, you know, many of you, some of you are older, but many of you are young and you're at the beginning of your careers. You're trying to figure everything out. The whole world will open up to you the better you get at your job. It's like it will end up being a platform for you to share the gospel with other people. It will give you credibility. It will give you influence. It will give you authority. People will look up to you. They will think something like this. You're at least good at one thing. Maybe you know something. And so what happens is, you think about, I'll give you a crazy example, Tim Tebow, right? If you ever read back in the day the story of him at the University of Florida, the amount of people he led to Christ, it's like, well, what do you do? It's like, well, he had this incredible platform and he wasn't a half bad quarterback. And then God used that, and he ends up leading all of his teammates to Christ, and this, this amazing influence that he had. It's like he used this platform, right? And this is good to know. Most of your witness and most of your worship will happen at your work. Now, that's the exact opposite of what the culture tells you. But that's actually great. It's like, why wouldn't it? Because you're around clients? Because you're around customers? Because you're around employees? Because you're around your boss? Because you're around your coworkers? It's like, these are the people that you're going to spend your whole life with. You're going to spend an enormous 40, 50, 60 hours a week there. And you're thinking you're going to have no influence? You think there's going to be no environment to worship? That there's going to be no, I'm not saying it's going to happen during the eight to five you know, hours that you're, you're, you're uh, at work. It may happen that you build relationships and then God opens up a door other places. I'm not saying it's easy to share in the workplace during those hours. But I mean, here's Daniel. He's a government official. And God greatly uses him again and again. He's a government, high-ranking, high very busy government official in a pagan society. And God uses him again and again and again to bring God's word to people. And there's six principles I want us to see. And here's the first principle. When God raises you up, people will try to bring you down. You know that. That's the first principle. When God raises you up, people will try to bring you down. Who, you know, and we don't know all that Daniel was good at. You know, he, had, he certainly had character. That'd be nice if we had that. That'll take you a long place. He was a dependable kind of person. Maybe it's why others didn't like him. He could be counted integrity. That means, you know, integrated. He didn't have a compartmentalized life. He was one person in multiple environments. That's why he's able to be used across time. So that's the first thing I want us to see is that Daniel was greatly used here, but uh, he ends up being distinguished. But here's what happens. Look at verse four. In verse four, as he gets more and more opportunity and he's actually about to get in a huge promotion, um, here's what happens. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. So here they want to bring him down. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Um, it's very, they're very honest here you know, about what happens when often God will raise somebody up. It's like, look, certain people won't like it. Who knows why, right? Some people say it was an anti-Semitism, right? Which is a very old spirit, right? So we read in chapter three here that there was a tyrannical ruler who wanted to throw Jews in the oven. That was chapter three. That happens again in human history. That's a demonic spirit. Different, same, uh, what is it? Same eyes and different people, right? That, that spirit happens. So we, did they just not like them because they're Jews? We don't know. What we, what we end up seeing is they try to bring them down. Now, here's what you need to know. Not every, you know this already. Not everybody in your life is going to like you. You know, and don't, don't expect everyone to. And some of you struggle with that more than others. 
Some of you struggle more with codependency and people pleasing and you know, wanting everybody to click the like button on your social media post and wanting to you know, be accepted in every environment. And I get it, okay? Certain people, we all have different struggles. Some of you struggle with that more than others. But what you need, if you just think about this for like 10 minutes, it'll hit you. Being liked is a very small goal in life. And what you don't want to do, and some people are this, and they don't even know this, everybody likes them, nobody respects them. That's a person, that's a type of person. There's a lot of them, and they exist a lot around here. And I'm not saying in two cities, I'm just saying in the world. Here's what happens. They're the kind of person that's like, yeah, you know, I go with the flow, I do what everybody else does. I'm kind of a chameleon, I'm, I'm a different person in different environments. I never say anything that offends anybody, I never share my opinion. I laugh at all the jokes. I don't have any convictions. It's like, that's not the kind of person you want to be. Because honestly, if you're going to care about anything at all and talk about it publicly and think about it for yourself, there's going to be a time where people are going to disagree with you. And you're not going to be the most popular person, which, which leads to the second big idea here. Our only fault should be our faith. Our only fault should be our faith. Look at verse 4. It says, they go looking to try to find something. Halfway through verse 4 says this, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault. Because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. This means that literally he was above reproach. That's a New Testament phrase. Have you ever seen that phrase? It's, it's said of Christians, it's said of leaders in the church that they should be above reproach. Above reproach basically means there's nothing bad we can say about you that's obvious. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that, like, if some, it says, for example, it says a pastor or an elder should be above reproach. Here's what that means. If, um, if, if you're asked to be an elder and you tell your neighbor you're an elder, they shouldn't go, you? You shouldn't call your parents and go, hey, they asked me to be an elder. And your parents go, you be an elder? It should be obvious to all that there's nothing about your life to which could bring scorn. You have a good, strong reputation. So here he is. He's got, he's got this great reputation, but then they find something. Verse 5. Then these men said, we shall, not, uh, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. In other words, the only thing that we can find fault with is his faith. That's his only flaw. That's his only failure is his faith. And basically what they're going to say is, look, you're, you're, he's offending us with his faith, which, by the way, we don't want to be offensive. I'm speaking again. I know not everybody in this room is a Christian, but I want you to understand this. If you're here, you're not a Christian, welcome. Um, Christians do not desire to be offensive. Like, you know, we're sheep. That's what the Bible says about us. Like, we want to go with the flow. We don't want to cause a lot of trouble. Uh, my heart is to serve you uh, and, and sacrifice for you and love you and forgive you and love my enemies. That's the Christian heart. That's our heart. Um, but what we believe is offensive. Now, not everything that we believe is offensive. Like, you know, if I tell you love your enemies, you go, well, that sounds good. You know, if I say forgive people, you go, somebody should do that. You know, <laughs> other people should forgive people. You know, that's a good idea. If we talk about giving to the poor or loving our neighbor or loving our enemies or, I don't know, that you're made in the image of God, it's like, wow, that's awesome. I agree with that. But then there's a lot of other things that we talk about that Christians believe, that Christians have always believed, that Christians have believed for 2,000 years that the church has fully agreed on that are just offensive. Let me give you an example. We believe in what's called twoism. This will take a minute to explain. We believe in what's called twoism, not oneism. Um, oneism, well, I'll start with twoism. Twoism says there are distinctions, there are differences. The Bible is binary. Here, I'll give you an example. There are men and there are women. That, that's been the church's, well, that's actually been human's belief for all of human history, but, but that's been the church's clear teaching. There are men, there are women. Uh, one is them. Nope, there's no difference between men and women. You can be a man one day, you can be a woman one day, you can, uh, gender dysphoria is not, you know, normal. Uh, gender reassignment surgery is acceptable because there's just, it's, there's no difference. 
okay, that's, two, that's one-ism. Two-ism. There is heaven and there is hell, and you will spend eternity somewhere in one of those two options. And according to the Bible, most people actually end up going to hell. And that's intense, but that's, okay, um, one-ism. Nope, everybody kind of dies and vaguely goes to the same place. That's one-ism. Okay, there is God and there is the rest of creation. There's creator, there's creation, they're distinct, they're different. We worship the creator, we rule over the creation. Seems fairly simple. What is, what is one-ism? Um, radical environmentalism, which is the creation is God. Or radical atheism, all there is is creation, there is no creator. Do you see the one-ism there? Uh, there are animals and there are humans. And humans are to rule over the animals and to be under God. They are, they are over the animals but under God. Oh, there's really no difference. One-ism says there's really no difference between animals and humans. Uh, there is two-ism. There is Christianity and every other religion, and they're different. One-ism. No, there's just vague spirituality. And I could go on and on and on, but you get the idea. We've lost this idea of distinction. So, you know, it's... So, and we don't want to... When we say what we believe, we want to say it humbly. We want to say it winsomely. We want to genuinely mean it when we ask other people, what do you believe? How did you come to those conclusions? We don't think we're better. We, we have a revealed faith. We don't think we're better than anybody. It's been revealed to us. We believe that we were in darkness, and we, we're, we're super, we should be super humble and winsome and childlike as we share these things. But there's other things. It's like, you know, well, the highest value, I've talked about this a lot, so I'll just real quickly, but the highest value in society is tolerance. I affirm, I approve, um, I accept, I celebrate you, um, and that's the highest value. Well, that's, that's the opposite of the Bible. The Bible's highest value is repentance. And see, we live in a society, and you'll see this at Wake Forest University, you'll see this particularly at the university campuses, and then at the big organizations and institutions first, that's where, in the major cities first, but they will act like the most mature person in the room, the most spiritually enlightened, the most, the most, the best citizen is the person who can put up with the most strangeness and shut their mouth still and smile and act like everything's okay when everybody's acting crazy and just say, yep, you're right, all sexual lifestyles, all perspectives, that everything's okay. And people can do the most sinful and the most strange things and I'll just smile and shut my mouth. And that's what it means to be a good citizen, to act like things are normal when they're not. It's like, well, we can't do that. You know, and then you've got to say things like, well, um, okay, well, on top of all of that, then you've got to tell people the hard news, which is they can't earn their salvation, which doesn't sound that offensive at first. It's like, well, you know, because you hear that all the time. But then when you actually have to unpack that, okay, here's what that means. It doesn't matter how bad you feel about your sin. That's not enough. People feel really bad about their sin all the time. That's not enough. It doesn't matter if you ugly cry about it every night. You can't have your sins forgiven just from ugly crying. It doesn't matter if you get on airplanes and build wells for starving children in Africa and think you're okay because of that. You're not. So I think that's not a good deed, but that you can't, that's, that's like the best act you think you could do. It's like that still can't earn your salvation. It's like you, you can't recycle and reduce and ride your bike and eat enough organic and shop enough at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself feel like you're a good person to earn your salvation. And that's offensive to people. Or, hey, there's not, there's not 10 ways, there's not two ways, there's one way to God, it's, through the, it's the one mediator, Jesus Christ. And whenever we say that everybody's offended, but I've heard it described this way, it's like, it's like if you're in a burning building that's collapsing down on you and you see the one exit door. You don't stand in front of the exit door and go, I can't believe there's one exit in this building. You go, I'm so thankful to God that there's an exit. And so what we believe is, it's, it's, I mean, 
I, we don't want it to be any more offensive than it needs to be. That's why we say the gospel um, is offensive, nothing else should be. The second thing is sometimes our lives will be offensive. I mean, not, real, not majorly offensive, not in our society. Maybe it'll just be more strange. Here's what I mean by that. Like, um, I don't know, if you're, if you're actually going to give a percentage of your income to the kingdom of God, it'll be strange. If you actually do that and do that consistently and do that generously and do that sacrificially, because then the person who has the same job as you, you live at a different level than them. You drive a different car, you live in a different neighborhood, you have different hobbies, you have different expenses, you take different vacations. It's like, well, you know, that's, well, that'll look strange. Uh, or if you're going to really be a part of a church, that'll look strange. Not, I mean, not come on Sunday, that's, that's still okay, somewhat normal in Winston, but, but if you're going to actually deeply be connected and, and, you know, serve regularly and call yourself a member and get in community and make, put it on your calendar and it's one of your main commitments, you'll seem strange to people. If you're going to really, if your family's really going to be a priority, not just say they're a priority because everybody says their family's are a priority, but I'm talking about maybe you don't take the raise or maybe you don't travel as much or, you know, whatever, maybe you have to make, maybe you don't have seven hobbies because you don't need seven hobbies when you have a family. And so you, you start doing all these kind of things and then it's like, okay, well, I actually look a little strange. So that, that, that's the second thing is our only fault is our faith. Here's the third thing. Fools settle for flattery and falsehood. Fools settle for flattery and falsehood. And we're going to be interested to the fool, Darius. We don't know a lot about him, but he shows up, and this, is, this often happens. The king is the exact opposite of Daniel in every story. It's like, you know, the king's got all the money, and he's got all the power, and he's got all the palace, and he's got all the women, and he's got all the alcohol, and he's got all the authority, and he's stressed and depressed and can't sleep. That's the king every time. That was Nebuchadnezzar, that's Belshazzar, that's now Darius. And then in, um, in comparison and contrast, you have Daniel who has nothing except God and the Holy Spirit, and he's thriving and he's flourishing. So here's what happens here. Then these high officials and satraps, they came by agreement to the king, and they said to him, Oh, King Darius, live forever. And he will live forever. It's just, you will live forever. It just depends where. He says, uh, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. And whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So here's what happens. They come up to Darius and they say, hey, listen, you're such a great guy. You're so awesome. You're the best king ever. And what you should do is you should like tell everybody that just for 30 days, just one month, they need to not worship anybody else, not pray to anybody else but only pray to you. Just do this for 30 days, and if they don't obey, show how powerful you are and throw them in the lines then. And what they're doing is they're appealing to his self. They're, they're angry at Daniel. They're appealing to his pride and his self-interest, right? They're using flattery, not encouragement, right? And th this is a helpful, sometimes these categories are helpful for us, right? Flattery is, is an unbiblical concept that the Proverbs and the Bible speaks against. Encouragement is a biblical concept. Flattery is, I'm telling you something because I want something from you. I'm going to butter you up because I need something from you. I need money. I need time. I need attention. Um, so I'll flatter you. Um, encouragement is I want something for you. So I'm going to just tell you some really great things about your, you know, about what I see God doing in your life. Um, it, you know, uh, encouragement, or sorry, flattery, uh, is about lies. It's about exaggeration, right? It's not the truth. It's like I'm, maybe there's some truth in it. That's why it's somewhat believable. But I'm going to I'm going to kind of expand the, what, what I see here. Whereas encouragement is based on truth. It's like here, here's what I see in your life. And encouragement, you know, where, whereas flattery wants to puff you up. Uh, encouragement wants to build you up. It wants to say, hey, I want to strengthen you. Encourage, by the way, it literally, the word means to put courage in someone. That's what it means. So that's what we want to do. Want, hey, I want to tell you. And you, a good encouragement is, without being weird about how you say it and overly spiritual about it, is just to say, here, I see, here's what I see God doing in your life, man, or woman. I see, you know, I really see this. The, you are incredibly gentle with your spouse. 
and I've seen how forgiving you are, and I've actually seen that in your life, and I've seen it change, and I just want to encourage you. It's like, you know, what you're going to find is people need so little encouragement in their life. I mean, the people need just very little encouragement of just a, a kind word can go a long way that's really meaningful and from the heart. Well, these men do the opposite. They flatter him because they want something from him. He makes the decision that we all make. Because, by the way, we're going to see the rest of this chapter. Darius is going to um, regret the decision. Has that ever happened to you? Do you ever make a decision kind of rashly, <laughs> quickly, and then regret it the rest of the time? That's what happens here. And why does he regret it? He regrets it because he didn't seek godly counsel. Where's Daniel in all this? Daniel is one of his closest men. He doesn't seek godly counsel, right? How do you get in trouble? How do I get in trouble? We want to make decisions without seeking godly counsel. It's like, you know, here's what most people do with, with godly counsel. They say, hey, do you think that we should move to um, Florida? And they, they bring someone in. And the reason I ask is because our house is under contract, and we found a great house in Florida, and I've given my job a two weeks notice, and I'm really excited to start my job in Florida. Do you guys think that we should go? We've all been on the other end of those conversations. Like, oh, all you want is a rubber stamp. You know, you, you didn't invite me in early. You didn't invite us in often. You know, you didn't have the conversation about, hey, is it wise to spend this much money? And I'll tell you, I, here, I've seen this. There's two areas, in, in all my years of pastoring and discipling, there's two areas that people don't want anyone to speak into. Anything that has to do with their finances and anything that has to do with a romantic relationship. It's like, you can speak into any area of my life, but don't talk about my finances. And if I like some girl or if I like some guy, and maybe I don't think they're the strongest Christian ever, but I don't want you to talk about them until there's a ring on my finger, then you can meet him. Because otherwise you might say something beforehand. And I don't want you to say something, so I'll just introduce him to all of my non-Christian friends who will just affirm me. And so he, he ends up getting in big trouble because he will not seek counsel. And then verse 8 and 9 set up everything. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it can't be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction, and it sets up this great tension. It's like it's signed. Daniel's going to break it. You know that from the story. But it's been signed. And this is interesting because Daniel's greatest test, Daniel's greatest trial, Daniel's greatest temptation comes at the end of his life, not at the beginning of his life, which is something to think about. No matter how old you are, it's easy to think, well, you know, maybe my, maybe, or maybe you think this, hopefully my biggest temptations are behind me. Maybe my biggest trials are behind me. Maybe my biggest tragedies are behind me. You, you know, and maybe they are, but maybe they're not. For Daniel, the, his hardest days were ahead of him, and that's actually a good way to think about life. I mean, even if it's not true, it'd be a good way to prepare yourself, right? Because you, you can't really, I mean, what are you going to do to protect yourself? You can't. You have to prepare yourself. How are you going to make yourself safe? Are you going to Cover yourself in styrofoam and order takeout. <laughs> That's not much of a life. I mean, you'd be safe. You know, nothing bad might happen to you, but it's not much of a life. It's like, you actually, instead, you want to you make yourself strong so you can go out into the world. So here's what happens. It sets up the whole tension in verses 8 and 9, and then here's, here's probably the big idea for the whole um, chapter. Our faith is to be personal but never private. Our faith is to be personal but never private. We're about to see something that Daniel does in a second. But what you'll be told in society today all the time, is, hey, here's what faith is, and just, this is what they'll tell you. Faith is private. Here's the phrase, and you'll know this. This is so smart. The people who come up with this stuff, and then, they, then you hear it everywhere, they're so good with language. So I, the, the serpent is, the first thing we're told about Satan is he's crafty. So you read these things, and you go, you'd have to be a genius to think about this stuff. They say this, um, you can practice your faith in your heart and in your home. Doesn't that sound, you'll hear that everywhere now if you look for it. That's, those are the two places. Then that sounds so nice. In your heart and in your home. 
Because here's what faith is. Faith is super private. And also, here's what faith is. Um, faith is really kind of spirituality, slightly ethereal, and mostly about your feelings. And then you go, well, if it's mostly about my feelings, and it's kind of ethereal, and it's kind of vague, and it's supposed to be private, well, then I'm not going to tell anyone about it. But it's actually what faith is, is it's supposed to, it's personal. It's certainly private. It should affect your individual life, but it's also public. And it's not based on feelings primarily. It's based on facts. In fact, feelings follow facts. You get a bunch of bad facts, feelings follow. You get a bunch of good facts, feelings follow. So the Bible's, you know, the, 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 our faith is based on facts. And so here's what they'll tell you in the society today. They'll say, and you feel this. You feel this in your neighborhood. You feel this in your, with your classmates and your coworkers. You feel it all the time. It's basically like this. It's like, hey, listen, please don't talk about your faith. But if you talk about it, don't be, if you have to talk about it, don't be excited about it. And if you're the kind of person that's excited about it, please don't try to convert anybody. And don't tell anybody that they're wrong or that they might need to become a Christian. And so with that in mind, that's what our society's told. I want you to see what Daniel does. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so he's not naive, right? Daniel's a godly man who knows the punishment and knows the penalty and knows the danger and difficulty of what he's about to do. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So you read this, and you know you go, come on, Daniel, you're making it so hard on us. I don't know if you feel that way. It's like, well, you know, it was only for 30 days they told him not to pray. If you go back and read it, it was only 30 days, so it's like, you know, what would you do? You know, I, I, I don't know what you'd do. You, you don't know what you'd do until, I don't know what I'd do, right? You don't really know what you do. And those difficult times, they reveal your character. They don't define, they, they reveal your character. They don't make your character. They reveal what's there. So who knows what we'd all do? But you think about it, it's like, well, it's only 30 days. Maybe you'd say, well, maybe I don't need to pray for 30 days. Or I'll just pray in my heart, right? Or some of you, some of us, if they outlawed prayer in America, it would make no difference in your life. It's like, well, okay, I'll pray. I'll still pray as I drive to work in the morning because I do that for a few minutes. And I'll say a prayer in my heart. No one will know about that before I go to bed. But I don't really have any kind of prayer life that anyone would be, no one would be arresting me for my prayer life. You know, that might be what you'd say. And that's, that's an okay, that's an honest place to be. But Daniel makes it hard on supper levels. It's like, Daniel, come on, man. It was only 30 days. Most of us would have probably just compromised. And then you have to open the windows. Do you have to do that? You know, there's people out there that can see in, and do you have to pray at noon in the middle of the day? That's where everyone's outside, and they'll definitely see you. Do you have to get on your knees? That's like the international sign of prayer. Like, why do you make it so hard on us? You know, because we see that you have a backbone. You see, we see that you have convictions. Here's what I think we see. That Daniel was a Christian. He was proud of it. I know it's a crazy idea. Daniel was grateful that he knew and loved God, and he wanted people to know that. They used to say when I was a, a student in college ministry, they said, if Jesus Christ was, if you had a picture, if your life was a picture of Jesus Christ, where would he be in that picture? He said, would, would, would Jesus be in the very background of it? You could barely see him. And if you looked real hard, you pointed him out, you could see where Jesus was. He said, the guy said, or is your arm around him and his arm around you at the front of the picture smiling at everybody? That may be a cheesy, cheesy analogy for you guys, but that always hit me. It's like, where is Jesus Christ in the picture of my life? 
You know, here's a, here's a terrible question to ask yourself. You know, how long does it take for someone to realize you're a Christian, if you are a Christian? You know, I mean, it's like, well, you know, they know about your kids, I know, and they know about you, your degree, of course. They, they're real excited about where you're going to medical school. They've heard all of your Netflix your recommendations. You shared the podcast with them. That was nice of you to do. You know, you told them about your family and your parents and your background. You, you shared all your fun vacations that you went on this last year. But you've, you know, but, and if you, and I've done this before. I mean, I, I'm, the reason, sometimes people go, how are you able to talk about these things in such a practical, applicable way? It's like, because I struggle with all this stuff. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, you don't want this to happen where you're, you know, it take, you know, you've got a friendship or you've got a neighbor and it takes eight or 10 months for your neighbor to realize you're a Christian accidentally because they see the two cities bumper sticker on the back of your car and they ask you about it and then you feel really embarrassed because they had to ask you about it. You know, and it's like, and what's hard, and this is what I've learned, is that the longer that you have a relationship in which they don't know you're a Christian, the more awkward it is when you tell them. Because it's something like this, hey, would you, yeah, I'm a real Christian. Yeah, Jesus Christ is the most important person in my life. And being a Christian is the most important reality in my life. Sorry it took me eight months to tell you that. Maybe I, or maybe you're, I had an old disciple where he used to say this to me, you're telling on yourself. That was his phrase. In other words, when you don't tell somebody about Christ for eight months, you're telling on yourself. You're telling yourself something, which is a good way to just go, okay, I need to repent, I need to grow. I need to, you're telling yourself and you're telling everybody else, Christ isn't as important in your life as you might think he is. I was um, with, uh, when I was planting this church, I went into a residency Nothing like the medical residencies that you guys go through, but I went through a nine-month residency, uh, and we traveled all over the nation and looked at all these churches that were doing a great job. We'd go, and I was in Denver, and I was in Orlando, and I ended up in, in Atlanta, and I was in this inner city in Atlanta, honestly, a rough area in Atlanta, and I met this guy there, and he was pastoring a church called Blueprint. His name's Dahadi Lewis. Dahadi Lewis, I think he's got six kids. He moved his whole family into the inner city, built this house right, right among everybody who lives in the inner city. And uh, he's, his church is flourishing so much so that they send people down there to watch it. Just like learn from them. They're doing something amazing. And so that's what we did. We went down there and we're walking around the neighborhood with him. And he said, hey guys, um, I'll never forget this. We're walking in this neighborhood. And he said, hey guys, uh, we have two rules when we walk around my neighborhood that I live by. And he said, uh, the first is that we're going to be highly relational. And the second is that we're going to be explicitly Christian. And I thought that's the exact opposite of most people. Most Christians are awkwardly relational, quietly Christian. And it wasn't, he, he wasn't doing, I'm, I'm not talking about being eccentric. I'm not talking about telling everybody you're praying for them all the time. Uh, it, 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 was, it was, hey, you know, it's like, hey, look, Christ was really important to him. And so for him, it's like, I can't talk about money f for a long time without talking about Christ. That's my heart. I can't talk about my family without Christ because Christ is the foundation of my family. It's going to be really hard for me to talk about my goals and my visions and my careers and my hopes and my family. It's just, it's just going to, it's not going to be awkward because it's going to overflow from my life like everything else that I love. And so that was one thing I thought about. And then I thought about when I was a, when I was a college student, just go back there for a second. When I was a college student, we had these things called beach projects. I was involved with campus outreach. I went on to work, work for them and but anyway, when I was a student, we'd go down to Myrtle Beach for like eight or ten weeks over the summer. We'd, we'd grow like weeds. We called, it, we called it spiritual greenhouse. It was like we would just grow spiritually. We were prayer training, Bible study training, evangelism training, leadership training. I loved it. 
Well, anyway, so, so we're down there, and, and the last week, they'd always pull us all in a room like this, and they'd say, all right, there'd be like 150 of us, and they'd say, hey, guys, listen, you're about to go back to your non-Christian parents. Most of us had non-Christian parents. He said, you're about to go back to your non-Christian families. He said, and then you're going to go to your secular schools, and you're going to go back to your dorm and your apartment and your classroom, and, and almost everybody you meet is not going to be a Christian. And they're going to ask you this question because it's the appropriate question. It's the same question you're going to ask them for the first two weeks of school. What'd you do this summer? And he said, you're going to be tempted to say something like, I hung out with my friends at Myrtle Beach. He said, you're going to be tempted to say part of the truth and not the whole truth. You're going to have a moment there to say, am I going to publicly identify with Jesus Christ? And, you know, I felt that. I felt that every time somebody asked the question, because we all kind of had committed that we were going to do that, all the students did. But I, I felt the question every time, that it's going to seem weird to people if I say this. They're going to look at me differently if I say this. What we see with Daniel is this great example. It says he kneeled. You know, why do we kneel? Kneel. The, the heart of prayer, by the way, is desperation and dependence. And you know this because you pray most when you're in trouble. You pray most when you're suffering or you're going through a trial or a tragedy or somebody that you know and love is going through a trial and tragedy. And that's what kneeling is. It, it, we're embodied souls. So when you kneel, I don't know technically what happens exactly, but something happens to your soul. Just communicate something to your soul. You know, I, I'm reading, a, I read a book. It's really good. It's called, um, um, I'm, I'm, common, The Common Rule. I lost the name of the title for a second. Sorry. The Common Rule. It's, it's written by a Christian who's a, he's a lawyer. And he was struggling with anxiety a lot. And so he's in his 30s. He was struggling a lot with anxiety. He couldn't sleep. So he put together these kind of eight rules that he was going to live by. And one of them was from the book of Daniel. And it was he was going to pray three times a day. And he's a lawyer, and, he's, and so he's in his office um, doing whatever lawyers do in their offices, okay? And, um, and he said um, what would happen is in the morning he'd wake up and he'd get on his knees and he'd pray. And then he said at night before he went to bed, he got on his knees and he prayed. He said, but that, that third time, he said, what happened is at noon his phone would go off or his watch would go off. And he said he'd realize, okay, I'm at work. And he would go and lock the door of his office. And he said he, said he would get down on his knees in his office, he said, and, it was, and I was wearing a full suit. And he said, there was just something wonderfully uncomfortable and awkward about getting on my knees in a suit and feeling the hardness of the floor on my knees and just remembering I'm a Christian. And I do, I'm doing this because I'm trying to follow God. And I'm trying, and he said, it would just remind him, like, okay, well, you know, I probably need to be a better employee. Or I probably need to be kind to that, more kind to that secretary. Or I, I'm probably missing an opportunity to share my faith because I, you know, I just wasn't even seeing it. And there was something about that reminder and the pausing. And he said there's something about just falling to his knees, even if it was just for a minute or two, that recalibrated his heart. So he falls to his knees, and then it says he, he gives thanks. You know, and that's a really interesting thing to think about. His life is pretty terrible right now. He's a vegetarian. <laughs> right? Um, he's living in Iraq, away from his family. He's been castrated. He's now about to be thrown to the den of the lions, the lion's den. And he finds time. To, it, says, it says in verse 10, I can't believe, he says he thanks God. Well, why? Here's why. Because no matter how bad things are in your life, they could be worse. And that's, I mean, that, if you want something practical to help people with, that's really a helpful, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I 
I was listening to a guy one time, and he was sharing about his daughter, and he said, well, I have this daughter, and she had multiple hip surgeries again and again and again and again. And, and she had early juvenile arthritis. I don't know all the titles of these things. And, and she was in and out of hospitals. And he said he always felt so, like you would, you know. Maybe you've, some of you have been in those situations. He just felt so bad. He felt bad for her. He felt bad for himself. We're in and out of these hospitals all the time. He said and then one day they were in the hospital and they walked by the multiple organ transplant unit for children. And he just thought, Wow there are worse situations to be in than what I'm in. As bad as what I'm in is in. And then he said, I thought for a second, there's not only that, there's multiple organ transplant unit with terrible health care. And then there's another level. There's, mul there's multiple organ transplant unit with terrible health care and I hate my spouse. And I mean, we could go on and on and on. You get the idea that like, you, this is technically true. You can only be so happy. I mean, you care about being happy, but it's like you can only be so happy. You can be really, 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 really sad. I mean, depression is a dark hole, and terrible things can happen to people. And one of the things to do when life is very hard is you thank God for what you have. You thank God for the things that God, that God is doing in your life. You, thank, you, you limit your time frame, and you thank God for the little things in your life. And then, you know, from a Christian perspective, we also thank God because we know, yes, things could be worse, and then also things are going to get much better. And so what he does is he opens the window and he looks outside. Now it says he looks toward Jerusalem. Why does he look toward Jerusalem? Well, he can't see it. It's 700 miles away. He knew the direction it was in. And what was Jerusalem in? If you, this is why knowing where you are in the scriptures is helpful. Jerusalem was in ruins. But God had made all these promises about Jerusalem. So he looks at that which is in ruins that God promised to do something about, and he prays for it. Isn't that a powerful thing? It's like, well, you know, in a room this size with this many people, like, who knows what's in ruins in your life? You know, I don't know. Maybe your health is, and maybe a relationship is, and maybe you can't stand, you know, your parents, and maybe your finances are terrible, and maybe you're struggling with some secret sin and addiction, and it just feels like your life's in ruins. Well, what, what do you do? You go and say, Lord, here's what you said about this, and I need help, and I want to pray about it. So that's what he does. And then look what happens in verse 11. They find him. Verse 11, here's what they do. It says, Then these men came by agreement. They found Daniel praying. They found him making petition and plea before his God. And you know, Daniel's suffering, and people go in and they find him praying. What do people find you doing when you're suffering? You probably don't want to tell us, right? Because when we suffer, that, that introduces us to the worst parts of ourselves normally. You know, I've talked to people before, and they're like, you know, I wasn't the porn person until my marriage fell apart. Then I became the porn person. You know, my kid, I know a guy. Gosh, it's such a terrible story. I haven't even told the story in the other, yeah, it's terrible. But he's his, not in this church, not in this state. Guy, his son killed himself, and he became an alcoholic. You know, it's really hard. It's like, you know, it's like, it's where he went. You know, and it's like, it's life is really hard, and it's like, where are you going to go? And you want some comfort. There's a lot of dark places that people go, and there's a lot of escapes that people go. And, and you know, so the great, the great uh, desire in life is to make God your escape. You know, and I have a friend who said, he said, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make God my escape, not pills. <laughs> Prayer, not pills. Adoration, not alcohol. You know, I don't want to be the person who just eats a carton of ice cream and watches Netflix and doesn't think about everything. I don't want to be that person who maxes out my credit card and I buy a bunch of stuff on Amazon to make myself feel better because when something new comes in the mail, I feel better about myself. It's like you don't want to be that kind of person. 
So they grab him and they bring him before the king. That's verse 11. Uh, Verses 13 and 14 says this. They answered, they said to the king, before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his uh, petition three times a day. Here's the fifth thing. We are to be good citizens until we can no longer be good Christians. We are to be good citizens until we can no longer be good Christians. And listen, I don't have a lot of time to get into these things, but I'll say this. Civil disobedience is very rare in the Bible. It's very hard to find. The amount of times where Christians or the Jewish people in the Old Testament go against the government actively, aggressively, almost never. You've got the midwives who won't kill the babies. You've got Daniel who won't eat the food. You've got in the New Testament, uh, Acts 4, they say, hey, we need to obey God rather than you, but it's not normal, right? Again, we are, the posture and heart of a Christian is I'd like to obey the authority. I don't want to cause a lot of trouble. I'd like to live at peace with all people. I'd like to pray for my president, whoever he or she may be. I'd like to pray for the politicians and I want to see our, our nation and our cities flourish. That's the heart of a, of a Christian. But every once in a while you have to disobey or, because you, know, you, you no longer can be a faithful Christian. Now, let me tell you where I think this is going. I don't have a lot of time to get into this, but um, we live in a society today in the West. It's like, well, what's going to happen? Are you going to get thrown to the lion's den? No, you're not. Are you going to be praying and someone's going to pick you up and take you in front of the officials? I don't think so. Not in the next several decades. What's going to happen? Well, I don't know for sure, right? But I, I have to try to speculate a little bit and talk about these things. And, and to do that, I'll have to talk about them badly sometimes. So, so bear with me, okay? Part of what I try to do is, the reason that I try to talk about certain things is like, we have to talk about them, right? And I'm going to have to talk about things badly sometimes, right? This is why no one wants to talk about gender. No one wants to talk about race, right? There, no, there are certain things nobody wants to talk about because it's like as soon as someone talks about it, it's like, oh my goodness, what's he going to say? Who is he going to offend? In a room this size with this many perspectives, somebody's going to get upset about it. Well, let me just say, what, here's what I think our issue is going to be in the West. And I don't know when, but they just did something in Switzerland this last week. What you're going to see is you're going to see more and more people wanting to put up hate speech legislation. Now, is, who wants to be for hate speech? Nobody's for hate speech. These people are so smart. You would never want to be for hate speech, right? We don't hate, Christians don't hate anybody. Well, I tell my kids, you can hate one person. The devil. <laughs> my kids like that. You know, I say he's, you know, he's, he's doomed. He's unrepentant. Okay, we can hate it. We can't hate anybody else. Okay, we don't hate anyone else. But what happens is, so this happened in Switzerland. They basically just passed this, and they basically said, "Hey, listen, you're not allowed to condemn certain sexual lifestyles. If you do, you will be punished." So what does that mean? That means that you can't. Well, by the way, you always first talk about yourselves. We're all sexual sinners. Every person. But wait a second, I can't say what the Bible says about something? I have to be able to say um, something is sinful, harmful, unnatural, forgivable. Those are the four things you say about sin. Hey, it's sinful. It's wrong. God hates it. It's harmful to you. It's unnatural. It's not how you were made. And here's the good news. After we talk about all those things, it's forgivable. But we can't get to forgivable if I just say you're okay and I'm okay and nothing's wrong with you and Christ didn't need to die for that and you don't need to be forgiven and you don't need to repent. It's like, that's not helpful. And so I think that's something that we have to watch for. I'm not saying it's happened. It may never happen. But as, as I talk to and as I listen to people much smarter than me, that's how things come in and it sounds like, well, who would ever want to be against putting in something like hate speech legislation? But I'll tell you, guess who says what hate speech is? The people you don't want to say what it is. That's who ends up deciding. And it, they, they create an environment where you can no longer be free to say what the Bible says. Which leads us to our final point, which is this. 
We need time with the Lord before time with the lions. We need time with the Lord before time with the lions. You know, the point of this, the point of this whole thing is not, this whole chapter is not the lions. The lions are three verses. We're, we're going to read them in a second. That's not the point. We're going to spend almost no time in it. The point is that, that because Daniel knelt before the Lord, he could stand before the lions. That's, that's the point of the chapter. He knelt before the Lord, he could stand before the lions. You know, it's, it's, you know this. What you do in your private life affects who you will one day be publicly. And that's a terrible thing to think about. It's hopeful, too, but it's a terrible thing to think about. You know, it's like, because if you would, we'd all probably like to be a Daniel in one sense. We'd like to be the kind of person that, who knows, 20 years from now, you've got an opportunity to, to actually have your life be about something and to stand up for something, and it's your chance, and you never know when that's going to be. It's like, well, how are you ready for that? It's like, well, we know how you're ready for that. Clean up your fantasy life. Stop, learn how to fight and forgive your spouse. Fight with and forgive your spouse. Figure out your finances. Learn how to be generous. Learn how to save. Learn how to be content. Deal with all those hidden secret addictions in your life. Stop being willfully blind to your own sinful patterns. Build something that looks like discipline in your life. Maybe it starts with scripture before screen. Maybe it's praying a couple times a day. Maybe it's little steps that are humbling to admit that you need to take them. And if you'll do that, you'll become a kind of person. There'll be an integrity about your life. There'll be a unity about your life. There'll be a simplicity about your life. And so he spends this time. I'll read this very, very quickly. Here's what happens. It says this, the king commanded and Daniel was brought and he was cast into the den of lions. The king declared, may your God who you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and it was laid at the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords. And then verses 18 and 19 says, the king didn't want anyone to entertain him. He couldn't sleep. Verse 20 says, as he came near to the den early in the morning where Daniel was, the king cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the mouth of the lions. Very quickly, what happened in the lion's den? The mouth of the lion has been shut by God. What does that mean? You're not going to actually be in a lion's den. Think of the lions as representing sin and suffering in your life. It's like, now, what does it mean for the mouth of the lion to be shut? Can a lion still hurt you if its mouth is shut? Yes. <laughs> Do you, would you want to be in the lion's den? It's like, okay, their mouths are shut. It's like, get me away from there. I still don't want to be in there, okay? Because they can pounce on you. They can deeply hurt you, okay? The whole idea here is the bite of it is gone. The most painful and the worst parts of what can happen to you have been stopped by God. And you have to believe that. It's like you have to believe you have a new relationship with sin. You, it's no longer your master. You don't have to obey it. And you, you're, you're not going to face a den, but you'll face a diagnosis at one point. You will. Either you or somebody you love. You're going to get the call. You're going to hear the news. You're going to talk to the doctor. You're going to get the diagnosis. And you're going to have to say at that time, this is a lion, but its mouth is shut. And it may pounce all over me, but it cannot harm me. Because ultimately, I, I, I have to go through this, right? We, this is the terrible thing about life sometimes. We're not going around things. We have to go through them. I'm going to have to go through this painful lion's den, but God will see to it that I'm restored at the end. So Daniel is restored, and then I want you to see what happens as we close here. Verse 24, the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought in and cast into the den of lions, they and their children and their wives... And, they were at, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones into pieces. It's like the Bible's an intense book. That's an intense ending. 
Well, here's what it means. It's like God didn't tell him to throw the women and children in there. Daniel didn't tell him to throw the women and children in there. That was, that was something Darius did. But here's what it teaches us, that our sin does not just affect us. We know this. You know, it'd be great if your sin only affected you, but your kids are watching, your friends are watching, your neighbors are watching. It affects you, and then, unfortunately, you have to interact with the rest of the world, so it affects everybody else that you interact with, right? And so what we see, though, is as terrible of that story is the gospel is the opposite of that story. It says instead of a bad man doing something evil and therefore good people being punished with him, the gospel is the opposite. It says there was a good man. His name was Jesus Christ. In fact, he wasn't just a good man. He was a perfect man. And he did the absolute perfect thing. He never, ever sinned one time. Where you failed, he succeeded. And because of what he did, it's really, this is, this is what we call, well, the technical term is federal headship, but it's our connection with Christ. It's because of what Jesus Christ did in his life and his death that when you believe, faith connects you to Christ. That's what faith does. Faith connects you to Christ and says, he was a good man for me. He paid the penalty for me, and he's righteous. I'm sinful, but because of what he's done, I can be forgiven. And the great hope of the Christian life is, look, there was a stone in the den of the lions that they put on, on in front of the lions then. There was a stone that they put in front of Jesus' tomb. But Jesus rose from the dead. That stone was removed, and he lives. And here's our desire. Our hope now is as Christians, those of us who are Christians, we want to make the invisible God visible to people. What's interesting is at the end of the book of Daniel, it's like, I'm going to read it to you in one second. We're going to pray over it. But at the end, it, the king doesn't say much about Daniel and a lot about Daniel's God. And that would be the hope in our life. The, the purpose of the book of Daniel is not dare to be a Daniel. Try to be like Daniel in 10 ways. The purpose of the book of Daniel is, man, if I'm going to be anything like Daniel, I need to serve a great God. God is so awesome. God is so big. God is so great. Let me, let me if you'll pray with me, I want to read you what the end of this book says. Here's what, here's, what a, here's what a rebellious king says about God after seeing the life of Daniel. He says this, he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom shall never ever be destroyed and his dominion shall never come to an end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Let's pray. Lord, that is you. You are a God who delivers, Lord. Lord, I pray in this room, Lord, if there's anybody who just needs to be delivered, Lord, delivered from an addiction, Lord, delivered from a certain lifestyle, delivered from just ideological possession of wrong thinking, Lord, I pray you are the God. Christianity is a rescue religion. You save us. You rescue us. You deliver us from Satan, sin, and death, from our own foolishness, from our own selves, Lord. Lord, and you work signs and wonders, Lord. We don't seek signs and wonders. We seek you, but when we seek you, often we'll see signs and wonders, Lord. And Lord, we want to see you be made much of all over the globe and in our city and in our church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.